All right, find a seat there. Great to see you all this morning. Hello, everybody online. Good morning, good morning, good morning. If you didn't hear about it last week, if you missed this somehow, we do have our Advent devotionals available for you. You can get that on the Church Center app or through the website, or we have a few physical copies left, I believe, out in the lobby. You can take that too. Um, but either way, is good. We hope you use those. Just a way of trying to uh, experience Jesus this season, this Advent. So, well, if, you, if I asked how many of you uh, believe in God, chances are most of us here would raise our hand, right? That's why we're here. Uh, if I asked how many of you believe that you actually know Jesus, that you have a relationship with him, that you've made a choice to, to live as one of his disciples, again, a lot of us here would raise our hand. And by the way, if you wouldn't necessarily raise your hand in response to either one of those questions, we're really glad you're here. Yeah, you know, it's great that you're exploring the possibility of knowing Jesus and what that could mean for you. But then suppose I asked you a third question. Suppose I asked how many of you would say that your life is filled with a deep and abiding sense of peace. My guess is, if we're all being honest, a whole lot fewer of us would raise our hand. Our nation, our uh, world, isn't exactly filled with a deep and abiding sense of peace either. Back in 2020, someone did some research and discovered that the United States has been involved in some kind of war for 225 of the 243 years it had been a nation at that point. That's over 92% of the time. We have never had a president who was totally a peacetime president. Every single one has overseen some kind of war. And on a broader scale, over the past 3,400 years of recorded human history, only 268 of those years have been entirely at peace. And my guess is that for some of those years, we just don't know everything that was happening. Yeah? You know, we're somewhat insulated from it, I think, here where we live in the Midwest, but peace is clearly not the norm in our world. War is. So today we lit the second Advent candle, the candle of peace. You know, Advent is all about hope and waiting and longing and expectation. Well, clearly we are still waiting to see the fullness of the peace that Jesus promised his birth would bring. You know, we're calling our Advent series Kingdom Come. Jesus taught us to pray for his kingdom to come, his will to be done, and, and peace is clearly a part of that kingdom. It's a, it's a part of what he wants for us. Well, Advent isn't just a few weeks to get ready for Christmas, right? It's not just a shopping season. Uh, Advent is a season to stir up our faith and focus our attention and our prayers on the kingdom of God that has come and is coming and will one day fully come, all because of Jesus. Advent is also a time to ask the Holy Spirit to show us what part we have to play in God's kingdom coming. So we're going to hear the prophet Isaiah this morning, again. Not in person, by the way. Um, 
And we're going to see what the Holy Spirit can say to us through him regarding the topic of peace. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. Uh, We open our hearts, our minds to you. We ask you to speak into our lives, um, shape us, continue to fill us with the hope that we talked about last week, and uh, lead us into more of your peace, an experience of more of your peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this is uh, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11. I'm going to read the first nine verses, which we heard, I think, part of during the candle lighting. It says, Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and of strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what, is, what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth. He will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fatted calf will be together, and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside a cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. So when Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world, he didn't step onto an empty stage. Jesus was born into a world that was already occupied and ruled by a hostile power. And when we think about Christmas and the peace that Christmas brings, we might not think talking about Satan and the kingdom of darkness fits in very well. Yeah, we want to think about quiet nights, right? Crackling fireplaces and uh, uh, the snow gently falling outside, all that warm, fuzzy stuff. But when Jesus comes into our lives, he doesn't step onto an empty stage then either. He steps into our lives and displaces the kingdom of darkness. In the book of Colossians, it says we were rescued from the kingdom of darkness. In other words, we were rescued from being ruled by the king of that kingdom and transferred to the kingdom of God, where Jesus is our king. And while that settles the question about which kingdom uh, we now belong to, it didn't end the battles. There is a constant tug on all of us from the kingdom of darkness. You know, it seems to me that since Satan knows he can't get us back completely, he at least wants to try and mess with us and make us miserable, right? Well, I say all that to remind us that there really are two kingdoms. You know, there is a kingdom of God where Jesus rules as king, 
And there is a kingdom of darkness where Satan rules. And when Isaiah spoke about the the wolf dwelling with the lamb and the leopard lying down with the goat and all the rest of the things like that that he said, he was painting a picture with his words of the shalom that would come, the peace that would come in God's kingdom. You know, not just a lack of conflict, but total peace, well-being in every way. That's what Jesus came to bring, the shalom of God, the wholeness, the health, the salvation, the rest, the freedom, the peace. And that kind of peace, you know, that shalom is only found in the kingdom of God. It's only experienced to the degree that we live with Jesus as our king. You know, last Sunday, Mike Masakovic talked about hope. Great message, right? And he had, a, he had a, a word of the day for his sermon. What was it? Hope. Oh, right. Well, today's word of the day could have been peace, right? But, but I wanted us to be thinking about the full meaning of that peace that Jesus brings. So today's word is shalom. Let's all say it. Shalom. shalom. God's peace, his shalom is only found where Jesus is king. When Isaiah the prophet first spoke those words I read back in the 8th century B.C., on the surface, it appeared that things in Israel and Judah were pretty good. Things were going well. The economy was great. Uh, Business was booming. It had been relatively peaceful. There was enough food to go around. So for 8th century B.C., life was good. Probably many people would have said, times are great, things are good, we are so blessed. Hashtag blessed. I just heard about that the other day. (laughs) I didn't know what that was. Hashtag blessed, yeah, right. That is, of course, unless you were one of the poor, or you were a widow, or an orphan, or a foreigner, or in any other way you weren't included in that successful middle and upper class group. Because while on the surface everything seemed good, once you dug a little below the surface in Israel and Judah in those days, what you found was their culture was rife with corruption and oppression and immorality and injustice. Which actually isn't all that surprising since many of the Israelites at that time were worshiping the idols of the nations around them, which were basically the gods, if you really look at it, the gods of money, sex, and power. That's what the idols were. And you always become like whatever it is you worship. It's inevitable. When you worship false gods like those Israelites were doing back then, because you think that's what's going to lead you to the good life, the life that you want, the shalom that you long for, you find instead that you become shaped by and enslaved to the values of those false gods. Shaped by and enslaved to the kingdom of darkness and caught up in its chaos. What's our word of the day? Shalom. Shalom. If you sow to the kingdom of darkness you reap the opposite of shalom. The darkness grows. The chaos increases. 
And so in Israel and Judah, in less than 20 years after Isaiah spoke those words, the vicious armies of the Assyrian Empire swept in. Judah survived for a while, but Israel completely was wiped off the map as a nation, as a kingdom. But one of the things I love about our God is that he never gives up on us. Isaiah, in his book, had earlier described Israel as God's vineyard. Now, in Isaiah, in the passage that I read, Isaiah said Israel had been decimated and reduced to a charred stump, right? He describes her as a stump. Uh, But the story wasn't over yet because God loved Israel and he longed for Israel to receive his shalom just as he does for all of us. So Isaiah wrote, a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. All that's left was a stump, but a shoot would grow from it. The Messiah would come and fight for our peace. Jesus would fight for our shalom. See, God doesn't have small goals. (laughs) You know, God isn't interested in making our lives a little bit better. He isn't interested in making us merely comfortable or simply reducing our stress. He certainly isn't interested in helping us find an artificial peace by satisfying our broken desires like those false gods of sex, money, and power promise to do. Now, God is making all things new. You know, God is remaking the whole world. What's our word of the day? Shalom. Shalom. You know, God is leading us into his shalom. God is leading us into his shalom where the lion can lie down with the lamb and the cow and the bear will graze together and mothers never need fear again for the safety of their children. And to do that, God must obliterate everything that stands against his shalom. Every last vestige of the kingdom of darkness that seeks to reduce God's beautiful creation to chaos. And so Jesus came into our world to fight for our peace, to fight for our shalom. But the way Jesus fights isn't like the way we humans typically fight. Not at all. His weapons, Isaiah tells us in that passage, are faithfulness and righteousness. His sword is his word. He said he kills the wicked with his words. Uh, you You know, we might try to do that by cutting people down, right? Utterly destroying them with what we say. But, but, Jesus does it by speaking words of love and grace and forgiveness that pierce our hearts so that we die to ourselves, so that we die to the kingdom of darkness and live with Jesus as our king. And in the book of Revelation, where where Jesus comes, you know, as the conquering king, there's this picture of him riding on a horse, and it says his robe is dipped in blood. That's not his enemy's blood on his robe. It's his own, right? The way Jesus fights for us is with self-sacrificing love. God's calling. (laughs) 
I have limited patience for spiritual talk that isn't practical. If you get to know me at all, you'll find that's true. You know, if it doesn't produce something real. When I first started thinking about this sermon, what went through my mind is that this whole idea of Christmas peace is kind of schmaltzy. <laughs> Isn't schmaltzy a good word? Schmaltz is schmaltz is a great word. Schmaltzy means excessively sentimental. We actually had to look it up in a staff meeting because we couldn't remember what it really meant. But we know what it feels like, right? It means excessively sentimental. You know, Christmas peace can be all nice talk about warm, fuzzy things that most of us, you know, warm, fuzzy feelings that most of us don't even really have most of the time. Or if if we do have them, they disappear right after the holidays, right? Right? Um, and, And it's also pretty easy to look at our world and think, well, if Jesus came to bring peace, where the heck is it? Right? But as I read what Isaiah had to say, in chapter 9, and I thought about that, and I prayed about it, I sensed the Holy Spirit saying that peace is something we have to fight for too. Jesus fought for our peace. He fought for our shalom, and to receive God's peace, we must join in the fight. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, died on the cross, rose from the dead so that his kingdom could come, and it will one day come completely. God's shalom that Isaiah described will one day fill all of creation, but we're not there yet, right? The kingdom has come, but it has not yet come completely. Jesus defeated Satan on the cross, so the outcome is secure, and yet we are still engaged in a spiritual battle. We're not going to experience the shalom of God in this life by passively waiting for it because we have an enemy who fights against us. To receive God's peace, to receive his shalom, to grow in our experience of his shalom, now in this life, we have to join in the fight. But we have to fight in the same way that Jesus did. Too often we Christians have gotten that wrong. We have to know who our enemy is. And Paul makes that clear in Ephesians 6 where he writes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right? It's not against people. It's against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Our enemy is real, but it is never other people. It is the evil spiritual forces of the kingdom of darkness. And the primary way we fight that enemy is by choosing every day to live with Jesus as our king. That's the primary way we fight. We live in a post-Christian culture, if you haven't noticed. Um, We'll talk more about that in the future, I'm sure. Mark Sayers, an author I've been reading lately. Thank you, Tyler. Is he in the room? I don't know if he's in the room, but he has given me one of his books. Really good stuff, and I've been listening to him a lot. Mark Sayer writes, uh, our post-Christian culture intuitively yearns for the justice and shalom of the kingdom while defending the reign of the individual will. Let me read that again. 
our post-Christian culture intuitively yearns for the justice and shalom of the kingdom while defending the reign of the individual will. In other words, the culture in which we are immersed wants the good things of the kingdom. Now, it grew out of what was a culture shaped by Christianity. It wants the good things of the kingdom, peace and joy and happiness and love and justice and freedom and all of that. Our whole culture wants those things. It wants what? Shalom, right? Everybody wants shalom. Of course everybody does. Who wouldn't? That's what we all long for. But our culture wants to obtain shalom without accepting the costs and the challenges and the requirements of the kingdom, without acknowledging that Jesus is king and I am not, that God is God and I am not. In other words, it wants the kingdom without the king, the kingdom without the king. And the problem is that's not just out there in the world. This is a temptation we all face every day because we live in this culture too. The culture isn't out there We're in the culture, right? This is us. We want to be in control of our own lives. We want to decide for ourselves what is best. We don't want to have to really listen to Jesus and obey him if that is going to be costly or hard um, or, or obey him if what he wants is different from what we think is best. We'll create the perfect world on our own. We'll create our own shalom by electing the right government, or fixing the economy, through better technology, or through just maybe following my own desires. The temptations in this spiritual battle aren't just about doing bad things. That's how we think of temptation often. They're about trying to produce the good things of God, the good life of his kingdom, his shalom, on our own, without God without the cost and the requirements of the kingdom. The temptation is to want the kingdom without the king. Still alive out there? Okay, good. Just checking. But the shalom of God, the peace of God, is always and only a gift from God, right? It's the only way it comes. It's something we receive, not something we can create or produce on our own. There is no kingdom without the king. The kingdom of God is a work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us that comes when we live with Jesus as our king, which means listening to what Jesus says and doing what Jesus tells us and trusting in God's goodness And living the way Jesus lived. Love God, love others, period, right? Even when that is hard or costly or different from what we want to do. So that might mean being faithful to your spouse when it would be so easy not to be, whether the adultery is physical or virtual. It might mean being content with the house that you have and the car that you drive and the income that you earn rather than always wanting more. It might mean forgiving that person who hurt you or abandoned you 
or disappointed you, rather than hanging on to that resentment that can feel so satisfying. Might mean going to someone you trust and confessing your sin, your addiction, uh, seeking the help that you need, rather than denying to yourself that it's a problem and letting it fester in the darkness. Might mean finding ways to build bridges with those with whom you disagree, who are different from you, who seem like a threat to you, rather than remaining in your bubble. Or maybe it means saying yes to the ways Jesus is calling you to step out in faith and take the risk of being more generous with your money or more generous with your friendship or more generous with your time and your talents. It could be as simple as saying yes to reading your Bible and praying every day and showing up for worship each Sunday. So we don't fight the kingdom of darkness by powering up and railing against evil. We fight against the kingdom of darkness by living with Jesus as our king. Or as John Wimber, founder of the Vineyard, always used to say, you don't fight the darkness by yelling at the darkness. You flip on the light, right? (laughs) Turn the switch on. Same thing. You know, we live with Jesus as our king, listening to what he says and obeying him, listening to what he says about us and trusting him, right? Because what he says about you is you're loved, you're his child, you know, you're safe, you can trust him. Allowing Jesus to tell us how to use our time, our energy, our money, our talents, believing what Jesus says about who he is and who we are and how we fit into what God is doing. That's the only way his kingdom comes. There is no kingdom without the king. It's the only way his shalom comes. What's our word of the day? Shalom. Shalom. We all want shalom, right? Shalom comes when we live with Jesus as our king. You know, Advent was originally a season of repentance, much like the season of Lent. As we're preparing to celebrate the birth of Jesus, as we're looking forward in anticipation to the day when Jesus appears again and his kingdom comes completely, Advent was meant to be a time of examining our hearts and turning aside from any ways that we have gotten ourselves over the course of the year caught up in worshiping those ancient idols of sex, money, and power. Any ways we have made ourselves king and returning to wholehearted devotion to Jesus as king. Now, I would like to think that by this stage in my life, those old idols would have no place at all in me, right? And then we hit a season when finances are really tight here at the church, and my anxiety goes up. And so I realize, oh, that's a signal, that's a trigger, that, that, that I'm still trusting to some degree in money. That's the idol, right? I'm trusting in money instead of trusting in my God who says he will provide all we need to do all he wants us to do. And so I have to repent once again. I have to turn from that idol of money and choose to live with Jesus and only Jesus as my king. 
So you think about those ancient Israelites is they never stopped worshiping God. They just added the worship of the idols just in case, you know. It's like, it's like well, I, I'm going to worship God, but just in case this one works, I'm going to do a little, little of this too. That's what God says we can't do. And when I do that, you know, when I turn, when I repent, when I turn, when I center myself on Jesus as my only king, when I do that, I experience a little bit more of God's shalom. So how might you need to do that this Advent? You know, what idols need to be displaced by Jesus in your life? There's a good chance you already know the answer to that question. Um, but why don't we just take just a few moments of silence here right now so we don't just rush past this and then forget to think about it. A few moments of silence and let the Holy Spirit speak to us about um, you know, what Jesus thinks is most important right now. What is he calling you to turn from? So Holy Spirit, speak to us. See, the question isn't just, is Jesus your king? The question is, is he your only king? That's really the question. Is Jesus your only king? And what I encourage you to do this week is just keep asking yourself that question. Ask the Holy Spirit to just make that answer more and more clear to you. And let this Advent be a season of surrendering your whole life to Jesus as your king and growing in his shalom. And, and maybe just, again, because of our background, we just was an emotionally focused all weekend, and we're thinking about, you know, how we're formed as kids, and so the wrong ideas we have that they trigger. You know, sometimes when we hear stuff like that, we think, oh, it's all about God, you know, limiting my life, because we have wrong concepts of authority and of, of obedience, because that's what we learned as kids. And so when you hear about, oh, I need to repent and surrender to God, it's like, oh, he's just going to He's going to crush me and make my life small. It's like, no, 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 no. When you surrender to God, it's like it opens your life to his shalom and he fills you with his life. That's what he's after, right? This is all out of his love and his goodness for us. Yeah, you can trust that. Amen? Amen. Amen. And there may be some of you here who are doing this for the very first time. You know, maybe you're here and you have never before given your life to Jesus or tried to surrender your life to him as king. And you may be wondering, how do I even do that? Um, well, you just do it. You just pray it. I'm going to just pray a prayer. And if that's you and you're at that point, just make this your prayer of surrendering your life to Jesus. And that's really all it is because it's a gift of grace. So, Jesus, I give you my whole life. 
I want to stop living on my, as my own king. I want to stop living my own way, and I surrender my whole life to you as my only king instead, Jesus. I receive your grace. I receive your free gift of forgiveness, and I invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and fill me and empower me to live with Jesus as my king. Amen. Amen. Yeah, and if you did pray that for the very first time, come and tell me later so we can pray with you and get you started on the journey. Amen? Amen. We're going to move into communion. So um, if you are online, I encourage you to gather what you need to share with us. If we could have four volunteers come on up to serve. Uh, we do practice open communion.